Good morning and welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. My name is Eleanor and we're going to deliver you some real truths here on 2XX on this fine Sunday morning. Yeah, no alternative facts here. There are no alternative facts in sight. We are joined in the studio as usual by Mitchell. Hello! Uh, And... Look, it's it's good that you brought up the alternative facts thing. Such an oxymoron. Oh, God. Speaking of oxymorons, do you know who else is an oxymoron? I can suspect. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Things, things are, you know, it's interesting living in a world where you can say what you want is true uh, and completely disregard science. Yep. Uh, it's hopefully not a trend that we will see pursued in any meaningful way. Yeah. Uh, I, I know. I've known some people for a while that have been doing that. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, here on Fuzzy Logic, we, we go to great lengths to bring you the most interesting science uh, research that's been done by experts who have, who have studied in their field for, you know, decades sometimes. To establish the least alternative facts. Yes. Yep. The most mainstream facts. Yep. You know. <laughs> How many indie rock bands are going to be called alternative facts oh, in the man. next decade? Do I you hope think? a lot. That's that's man, yes. I'm 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 calling dibs on that one. That's going to be my band. I'm looking forward to that music. Well, there's been so yeah, I mean there's been this sort of running theme of of uh, disregarding things that have been shown to be true. We talked a lot about climate change last time you and I, you and I were on the, the show. So one of the things that, that's kind of come about in the last week or so as a result of uh, the sudden spawning of alternative facts as yeah. being a, a way of approaching the world is uh, the women's marches last weekend. They were pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I was going to go to the one in Canberra, but I was working. Uh, disappoint. Mm. Um, I was going to go to the one in Canberra, but I was horribly ill. <laughs> Um, oh, no. Why did I laugh? That's not funny. No, that wasn't very nice. Uh, but, you know, I mean, talk, talking about millions of people worldwide getting involved in those marches. And on every continent. Yes. Mm. Really? Every continent? Every continent. That's fantastic. Because a whole heap of researchers from Antarctica oh, had got a together and had a march. That's beautiful. I don't know how much marching they did. I saw a picture of all of them posing together on the prow of a boat. Oh, that's, I mean, that's, that's a march, as yeah. long as you move your legs a little bit. Yeah. As long as you consolidate your efforts, I guess. Yeah. And there is there is buzz online about a scientist's march uh, in DC in the next couple of weeks too. That's pretty cool. Well, so that would be a good good event as well. Yeah, because you're looking at the US going down a similar path to what Canada had under their last prime minister, mm. which was really not good for the scientists in yeah. Canada. And I yeah. think at this critical junction where this is kind of the time and place that we can potentially make a difference when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Yeah. This is where we actually need scientists on board. We need them funded. We need rigorous, uh, I guess, distribution of of funding to people who are going to be finding the best ways to save the world. And we need their research to be disseminated. Exactly. Yes. Like open access journals, more scientific literacy and stuff like that. Yeah. Yep. Big supporter of open access and science Mm -hmm. education. Open access is great. Open access is great for me for Great for people like me who are self-teaching themselves science. Self-teaching themselves. Self-teaching themselves. You're doing a great job. Yeah, I'm so good at words. Well, in light of in light of all of this, and, and particularly in light of the women's marches on the weekend, really wanted to highlight some of uh, my favourite uh, lady scientists. Power lady scientists. Yeah. yeah. Do you yep. have you have a few as well? I have a couple of power lady scientists. That's yeah. fantastic. Yep. Um, so I think for this episode, we're going to kind of go back and forth and, and try and convince each other of how great our top three picks for scientists are. Oh, like a Pokemon battle, but yeah. with lady scientists? Exactly. Is that what's happening? Okay. I, I should have picked more powerful ladies. <laughs> <laughs> 
no, I, I need a better team spread. This is this is this episode is actually genuinely just going to be titled "My Favorite Scientists" because okay. these people are uh, incredible in their field, have absolutely changed the game in terms of the topics that I'm going to discuss. Uh, which spoiler, they're all quite closely related to things that I study. Yeah, it's it's yeah one of these things that his, history is written in a particular way, and one way that history is written is to very is, much exclude is a ri- lot of the... One way that history is written is by men? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was trying to say. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I think some of the statistics that we'll go through will kind of illustrate that. Um, and we obviously don't want to bring you down on a Sunday. We want to open your eyes to perhaps some scientists that you haven't heard of, exactly. but who deserve to be equally famous That's it. Um, for their discoveries. So, I'm going to start. Go ahead. I'm, I'm pulling out my first Pokeball. Oh, no. And all, from it. All my, all my power lady scientists are all ground types. Ground types. <laughs> I now actually kind of understand where you're going. Yeah. Um, my first is Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkins. That is a great name. Have you heard of her? I've not heard of her, but, like, does she have literal crow feet? Uh, yes. She, did she do a lot of groundbreaking work into genetic modification? Of her own feet. Of her own feet. Yeah, she was ahead of her time. Um, you think that's a cool she, name? She was one step ahead of the game? Her dad's name was John Winter Crowfoot, oh, which sounds like a Game of Thrones character. It does sound like a Game of Thrones character. How cool is Say he? it again. John Winter Crowfoot. Man, yeah, he's got some mystical weather powers. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, actually, so... Dorothy Hodgkins, she was born in 1910. Mm -hmm. Um, Both her parents were Egyptologists. Cool. So John was a scholar and archaeologist. Yep. Uh, He sort of fussed around in pyramids looking at interesting things. And her mother, who was Grace Mary Crowfoot. Her mummy, even. Oh. Oh. uh, She was uh, a scholar as well. She was an archaeologist, but an expert in ancient textiles. Cool. So she'd go find ancient fabrics and analyze what they were made of and what they meant and what sort of dyes people were using. So That's pretty awesome. Dorothy was born in Cairo to British parents and I guess spent her childhood surrounded by ancient pottery and mm. Egyptian hieroglyphs and exciting things like that. Yeah. Uh, and there's a biography of her called, I think it's just called Dorothy Hodgkins, and it's fantastic uh, because it describes her childhood sort of surrounded by what is going to become very relevant in her adult academic life. She spends a lot of time around tiled mosaics and intricate patterns on on textiles. Yep. So uh, a lot of the time she's working with her parents or they're working and she's sort of mucking around and noticing these like repeating patterns in tiles and things like all decorative art. Uh, And she ends up pioneering the creation of protein crystallography. Yeah, that's a bit of a leap. <laughs> yeah, okay. I thought she was going to, like, her parents were going to both die of a mummy's curse and she was going to be, like, a Batman figure of e- Egyptologist. No. E- Egyptology, no. So all those patterns that she saw in her childhood, I'm probably reading way too much into this. But <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. Read, the, the, read repeating, the repeating patterns that she saw on these textiles and on these um, sort of intricate carvings and things, uh, sort of there's this nice parallel with how protein crystallography works, which is all about a repeating crystal lattice. Well, yeah, that's what crystals are. Exactly. It's a repeating structure. So yeah. her life's work kind of very nicely mirrored the sort of childhood she had in uh, in ancient Egypt. She wasn't in ancient Egypt. <laughs> yeah. just in regular S- Egypt. Yeah. Uh, uh, surrounded by ancient Egypt. Stuff. Stuff. 
So during kind of the time of World War One is when she went back to England to live. Yep. So she attended school there. She was cared for by family and friends uh, and then started um, getting tutored specifically to get through the Oxford entrance exams. So she was being tutored privately by all her parents' sort of very um, highbrow scholarly friends back in England. And she did succeed in getting into Oxford, where she went and studied chemistry. Yeah. Uh, so she got a first-class honours degree from Oxford. She was the third woman ever to get a first-class honours degree from Oxford. Cool. Uh, which is pretty great. Uh, she went on to start looking at big biological molecules. So this is the sort of stuff I quite like. So at the time, uh, it was 1935, she started looking into insulin. Everyone knows what insulin is. Everybody knows what insulin is. So insulin is this like big old protein. That you use to stop diabetic people turning into werewolves. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it, it's it's a very uh, kind of complex biological molecule. Um, and it is involved in regulating a whole lot of functions, particularly to do with sugars, um, which is why people with diabetes have to take insulin. Yep. And so it's 1935 and she starts looking into insulin as a, as a molecule, as an interesting biological target. Now, back in these days... If you wanted to solve the crystal structure of something, which is what I do at the moment, yep. you basically got the thing. And you don't you shoot it full of x-rays? Yeah. Yeah. You get the thing, you crystallize it, you shoot x-rays through it, and the x-rays diffract. Well, it's like, is it like... See, the way... When you describe it to me, I imagine it like light hitting a disco ball. Is it like that? Yeah, sort of. And then you can reconstruct the pattern of the of the disco of ball. the disco ball by looking at all the little reflections on the walls that's and basically stuff. it yeah yeah okay yeah. that's what i always pictured that's essentially it so if you ever were in physics in school and yep. did the two slit experiment yep yep so yep, yep. where the waves would interact with each other through this these two slits so you shine a shine a light through two slits in a piece of cardboard close together mm-hmm. and the pattern you get on the wall is a series of dots of different intensities so instead of just getting like two beams of light going through you get constructive and destructive interference of those light waves as they interact with each other those two beams and it ends up looking like bright patch dark patches bright Bright patches patches, dark dark patches patches. because when the waves meet constructively when the waves are both big When when they line up properly and yeah. you get big waves you get a brighter spot yeah, yeah. exactly and it's when how, they cancel how, each other out you get nothing it's how we know light it's a particle and a wave exactly because it does funny stuff like that and so basically with x-ray crystallography instead of using slits in cardboard you're using a molecule yeah. using a crystal so every time the x-ray hits um some electrons it will change its phase and you can actually collect the pattern of that that equivalent of the dots but you collect it on a big photographic plate back yeah. in the days you get these beautiful concentric circles of spots um spreading out like the ones here on the wall in the studio yeah actually like those yeah this is good for for an audio medium um, just like that does does uh does two double x have a twitter uh fuzzy logic does fuzzy logic does we'll take a picture of it and we'll put it on twitter yeah or I could also just take a picture of some diffraction patterns. Oh, that's Let's true. do both. Let's do Let's it side do by side. Yeah. Perfect. See how spot on I am. So, 1935, she wants to figure out the structure of insulin, uh, take some pictures of diffraction spots through a crystal of insulin. Yep. But given the power of computational techniques and things back in the day, that kind of lies dormant for a while, that project. And she goes on to do some other things. Uh, in 1948, she crystallized vitamin B12. Yep. Which is a big old vitamin with mm. a cobalt 
atom in the middle of it. So nice blue metallic. Nice. Good, good solid atom there. It's yeah. a good, it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, so that was um, hailed as being as significant as breaking the sound barrier by a guy called Lawrence Bragg, That's who good. was a famous, a very well known pioneer of X-rays. It's actually what she got the chemistry Nobel prize for That's cool was solving that structure so she was awarded that nobel prize in 1965 was she- yeah 1964 you awarded it posthumously no oh that's nice no she um passed away in 1994 back to the insulin story yep so she's got the insulin pictures sitting on her wall she's had them sitting on her wall for 35 years wow i hope that didn't get um, faded <laughs> And in that interim, in that 35 years, she's constantly working towards improving X-ray crystallography techniques, right? So improving the way that images are collected and how data is processed. And back in these days, you would actually get sheets of perspex and you would draw the uh, electron density from these molecules on perspex sheets and then stack them up so that you had sort of a see-through three-dimensional... Like when you got your books of the human body with all the clear plastic sheets and it's got the skeleton on one sheet and the, all the guts on the next sheet and the yeah. heart on the next one. And then yeah. imagine that, but like almost like a cube because you've got so, so many, many layers. Wow. So it constructs this three-dimensional image. Oh, um, that's so cool. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the technology that she was pursuing. Uh, and like just for comparison, so insulin is... Um, 51 amino acids long. So yep. a protein's a big, long chain of amino acids. And then you loop them, curl them up. Yeah. Yep. And hers was 51 amino acids long. Mm-hmm. Big, big, big molecule by their standards. It's a lot. 51's um, a lot. And it took them 35 years of developing this technology to solve a structure of insulin. Wow. My protein that I work on is 340 amino acids long. Wow. It's going to take you like... It's going to take you over 100 years. Well, with today's technology, thanks to Dorothy Hodgkins, I can solve a structure of it in about 10 days. Wow. Good, yeah. on, good on your dot. So, I mean, this is just, it's, it's the most insane example of how the pioneers of that era who were really pushing for this technology to be improved have made it almost trivial to go And like the hard bit is not doing the computational stuff anymore. That's like you click a few buttons and someone's written a code that does it. Cool. So luckily she did get the Nobel Prize. Uh, She also got the Copley Medal, uh, which is a medal handed out by the Royal Society uh, in London. Mm -hmm. And that medal has been being given out every year, more or less, since 1731. Cool. She's the only woman who's ever gotten it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 1931. 1731. 1731. <laughs> That's, that is, ah, no, that's not okay. So now we need to, we need to uh, annex this committee that hands out this awards. Yep. And even up the score. Exactly. So we only imagine, give it to women for another 200 years. Imagine if it was just women for the next two or 300 years. Oh, God. I know. And and it's given out to outstanding achievements in any branch of science. It's not like it's, you know, hardcore man physics. No. It's like all science forever since 1731. Oh. And it's just... <laughs> I'm going to have to do so much sound editing. No. <laughs> um, I know. It's kind of crazy. Um, but you know, it just goes to show that her work was just insanely influential, that she was even able to break that glass ceiling and yeah. get that award. Wow. 
Yeah. Wow. And so that's why Dorothy Hodgkins is one of my favorite scientists. She's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to go to a song quickly. Uh, this is called Les Artistes by Santa Gold. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. Um, welcome back to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX. You're nice. listening to Fuzzy Logic. That's that's what you're listening to. It's us. We're talking about science this Sunday, and we're talking about uh, women scientists in recognition of the, the women's marches that have been happening recently for no reason whatsoever, just because go out and have a march. It's, it's <laughs> a nice day. Let's, let's go march. Let's go march, and let's let's go do some great science. Yeah, and do some great it. science. Yeah. Um, before the break, before the song, we were talking about Dorothy Hodgkins, who pioneered... Dorothy Hodgkins... Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkins. Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkins. That's the most interesting part of her name. Um, who is who should be the most famous crystallographer. Rosalind Franklin obviously gets some recognition as well for DNA. And yep. I just wanted to add before we go on that my favorite fact about Dorothy Hodgkins is that when um, Rosalind Franklin and, you know, Watson and Watson Crick, and whatever. Crick, those, um, yep. But does, Rosalind Franklin, yep. yeah. Yeah, when, when she uh, uncovered the structure of DNA, yep. um, they were based at Cambridge. Dorothy Hodgkins and her friends were at Oxford, and they went on a road trip to see the structure. Aww. They all piled into a few cars oh, and, like, drove to Cambridge to see it. It was, that's, like, their fun day out. That's really cool. And I just thought that was, like, super nerdy and wonderful. Nice. Yeah. It's a little field trip for the people that do all the science in a building. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Big fan. Cool. Uh, so, who's your first favourite scientist? My first favourite scientist is a water ground type um <laughs> marie tharp she's a pretty cool lady she's another one of these scientists that as a child mm. her her dad was i think her dad was a, a geologist yeah she often as a child she would accompany her dad when her dad went out to go take soil surveys for geological mapping awesome and so she it's like old dot crowfoot hawkins mm. um she's always surrounded by all this cool stuff as a kid yeah except she went on to become a geologist. Okay, not an not, Egyptologist. Not an Egyptologist. So, yeah, she just got fascinated by dirt and rocks. Lovely. Um, and she also got into cartography. Mm. The cool thing that Mary Tharp did, she was involved in a massive project mapping the geology of the Pacific Ocean, the seafloor. Wow. Be be because back in, I think this was in like the 30s and 40s, mm -hmm. when this was being done for the, undertaken for the first time, uh, a lot of people assumed that that the ocean floor was just as big and flat and empty. Yeah, it's like the bottom of. Oh, a, that would have been my assumption. Right, it's the bottom of a big lake. Yeah, lakes like it's just flat, big, and it's filled up with sediment. It's and got it's some sediment sand. in the bottom. It's a whole heap of mud. You go down deep underwater, and it's just mud. And some fish and fish poo. Excellent. Uh, is that not what it is? No, it's not. <laughs> so what this? There was this team of team of researchers that went out in a boat, mm. and there were using echolocation to ping the bottom of the ocean floor. You know, submarine movies where they go, ping, and you hear the, you hear the echoes, yeah. and they can, the echoes tell you where the stuff is. Yeah. This is exactly what they were doing, except they were just pinging the bottom of the ocean. They'd sail across the ocean, pinging the seafloor, and get you a, a map of awesome. the ocean floor. And Mary Tharp, Marie Tharp was not on the boat. Aww. You want to you know why she was not on the boat? Why wasn't she on the boat? Have a guess. Um... Was she under the boat? No, she wasn't under the boat. Oh, was she? Because it was because she was a woman. Because she was a woman. Oh, it's no. bad luck to have a woman aboard. So Marie oh, wasn't even on the boat. She wasn't allowed to be on the boat. She was handed all this data once when they got back, and yeah. she drew up these maps. And one thing that kept coming up again and again and again in these maps 
is like right out in the middle is this deep V-shaped valley. Mm. And she's like, this is a bit weird. Mm. This is, and it's this one valley that goes all the way down the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Like the Pacific Ocean is really, really big. It's the biggest ocean. Yes. But it's got this one valley that goes all the way through it. Mm. This is kind of a bit crazy. Uh, and everybody's like, yeah, right. You know, uh, they didn't, nobody believed her. Sure. Uh, when one of the things that this might've had something to do with is, a hypothesis that was proposed, uh, at the turn of the turn of the uh, near the start of the 1900s by a bloke called Wegener that, uh, the continents are all moving around. They used to be part of an huge supercontinent called Pangaea. Mm. And Marie Tharp's like, yeah, that, 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 that is an idea. It had been argued about for ages and largely dismissed. Sure. Uh, and Marie keeps mapping the ocean floor. There's this huge valley. Another person in her research lab is map looking at mapping the epicenters of earthquakes. And a lot of his research is pointing to this line that goes down the guts of the Pacific Ocean. Mm. Um, and so Marie's like, yeah, no, there's something here. They start mapping other oceans and they're finding these same mid-ocean ridges in other oceans as well. Mm. Uh, a lot of her work was dismissed and, you know, yeah, dismissed and thought to be rubbish. Yeah, they, they also found one in the North Atlantic next. And they Marie and this other guy, Bruce, who, who she was working with, published their first physiographic map of the North Atlantic in 1957. Wow. Uh, and over the following 20 years, they extended their mapping to all the world's oceans. God. That's a lot, right? It's a lot of oceans. It's a, every ocean. The One of the cool things about that I like about this is a lot of people are like, continental drift kept coming back up again. Maybe this is how continental drift is happening. The ocean's being pushed apart. Mm, and this, leaving behind. This, this ridge in the middle is where the two plates are getting pulled apart. Mm. And a lot of people thought this was rubbish. And mm. this, there's no way this thing actually exists. And one of the people that thought this was absolute rubbish mm. was a French marine scientist mm. uh, with a little red hat. Yeah. Is Jacques, Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau. I thought you were going to say Steve Zizou. No, not Zizou. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jacques Cousteau is like, no, this is rubbish. That No way this thing exists. That's crazy. Um, and so he gets some of Marie Tharp's maps and, and sets out to film the area where this valley is supposed to exist mm. to prove that it's not there. Yeah. Guess what he finds? <laughs> that it is there? A giant valley. So, it runs down the guts of the middle of the uh, middle of the ocean. So everyone's heard of Jacques Cousteau. Yeah. Uh, no one's heard of no Marie Tharp. No one heard. No one's heard of Marie Tharp. And he's and, credited with like confirming that her data was correct. Yeah, that's it. Wow. Um, and when you're talking about when you're talking about uh, continental drift as well, nobody talks about Marie Tharp either. Mm. Um, everybody, talk, everybody talks about Wagner. Mm. Uh, I think it's Alfred Wagner who proposed, who proposed the it. Yeah. And it was. Laughed at. He was laughed out of town. Yeah, well, at it, least he it, was laughed at too. Yeah. Um, as long as everyone, it, as, long as long as everyone's, everyone's equally every, laughed at, I'm yeah, fine. That's it. Yeah. And it wasn't until the work of Marie Tharp. Also, Marie Tharp didn't think there was much in continental drift as well. Apparently. Oh yeah. But all of her work was like the foundation of the evidence towards supporting mm. this this 
known thing that the continents all move around. We This isn't a controversial idea. Australia has measurably moved in my lifetime. Yeah, it moves yeah. like six centimetres north a year or something. Since I was born, it has moved my height. Wow. <laughs> which isn't going to stay true. So I got a... I got a that uh, is a beautiful fact. That's pretty cool. That's yeah. awesome. It's um, such a shame she didn't get to go out on that boat, but it's yeah, great right? that she like, pioneered. She's just in, in the office doing all the maps. Um, by the time Marie retired in 1983, plate tectonics had been widely accepted and she had witnessed and helped to foster the complete transformation of her field. Oh, She's that's pretty, awesome. It's cool. good that she got to see that See that happen. change happen. Yeah. yeah. Ask me who my next one is. Okay, who's your next one? My next favourite scientist yep. is uh, May C. Jemison. Cool. That's so a pretty May, good name. and then C. C. As Jemison. In- not the letter just C. the letter C. Yep. Okay, not Sorry. the ocean. Her name's May. So yep. she was born in 1956. Yep. Uh, she was born in Alabama. Alabama. In Decatur. Uh, to uh, I think her mum was a school teacher, and her cool. dad did something presumably. Did a job. He had a job. Yep. Uh, and they moved to Chicago when she was three, and so she grew up in Chicago. Cool. And she relates uh, the time that she spent in her childhood in Chicago. She just assumed she would always go to space. <laughs> that's great yeah no she, that's that's the logical conclusion she would like well because i mean it's right there imagine look at it it's, imagine it's being right there 10 like yep. 10 or 11 and then apollo's happening yeah so she was like well by the time i'm an adult like everyone will be going to space like of course i'll go to space of course i'll go to space I'll be an astronaut yeah. easy no worries yep um so this young african-american girl looks up at the sky and goes yeah that's me in 20 years easy she just assumed she'd go to space uh, and there's a quote. Gotta go to space. There's a quote here from her. Uh, she says, at the time of the Apollo thing, everyone was thrilled about space, but I remember being irritated that there were no women astronauts. People tried to explain that to me, but I didn't buy it. <laughs> Good on you, May. So she's also, already. Also, I like the Apollo was a thing. Yeah. yeah Apollo is a thing. That sounds like, it sounds like such modern language. Yeah, Nothing exactly. ever changes. Yeah. Um, so her, her mother really fostered like this love of science that she started to develop. Good on her. Um, so apparently like one of the anecdotes is that she got a splinter in her finger when yep. she was like a pretty young child yep. and it got infected and her mother turned it into a research project about pus. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is really lovely. So her mum really nurtured this sense of, yeah, go out and do science and her teachers didn't so much. So all her school teachers were kind of dismissive of yeah. science as a potential career path for people. she's a little black girl. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and she said that, like, just every kid of that era was obsessed with science. Like, because they're witnessing man walking on the moon for the first time. Yep. And so everyone was really excited about it. Oh, my it. God, space! So she was obviously a bit of a genius because she started at Stanford University. Yep. Which is a good university. That's a pretty good university. And she was 16. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So now we've got a 16-year-old black girl starting at Stanford um, in, I guess, that would have been the... seven. It would have been 1970, yeah, 1972. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, like, she she talks about it um, in, in some of her biography sort of videos you can find on YouTube and things about basically it was just her naivety that meant that she could go through with it. The fact that she just... It never occurred to her that she couldn't do it. Um, cool. Which is... Like, a good way yeah, for a 16-year-old to approach going to university. Yeah, right? Like, good so on you. She completed Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering, um, but she also did enough electives to get a Bachelor of Arts in African and African-American Studies. Cool. So she ended up with two degrees at the end of it and then went on to become a medical doctor in 1981. 
so she did her uh, medical studies at Cornell. Yep. Also, like, yeah. oh, top tier. Yeah. Um, and then she went off to work as a GP. But she wasn't content just working as a GP in the States. Yep. Uh, she... she wanted to be a GP in space. <laughs> Eventually. So she, first of all, um, headed overseas and started to provide health care for people in Cuba, in Thailand, in Kenya. Wait, is the end of this story that she's the GP on the International Space Station? <laughs> no. Oh. Oh, stop trying to spoil it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so she joined the Peace Corps. She got involved in the Center for Disease Control that's and started so... research into preventable like vaccines and things like that. That's so cool. Um, and then this is this is the point that like I really like about this story because this is entirely about representation. Yep. Because what happened in the 80s, 1983, Sally Ride is the first woman in space. Yep. So Sally Ride, also so... an awesome Um, female scientist up in space, first woman in space. And May basically saw that Sally Ride went into space and went, oh, well, maybe the space program's changed now. Maybe NASA's a bit different and it's not a big boys club and I can go up. So that was the first thing. The second thing, and this is really cool, her other inspiration for applying for NASA was Star Trek. Yes, and Uhura. Yes. Yes, excellent. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, what, what's her name? I've never seen Star Trek. Lieutenant Uhura? Yeah, I don't know her rank. Um, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't seen that much Star Trek. Uh, she's played by Nichelle Nichols. So much of it. She was famously one of the first black women um, on a mainstream TV show who was just, like, playing just a character. A, just a person, yeah. Um, she was, a, she was a, like, the science officer, wasn't she? Um, I don't know. I think so. I'm more of a Star Wars person. Okay. I feel bad. Fair enough. But anyway, so between Sally Ride going to space and then May seeing herself represented as a you know as a space person space on a person. on a popular television space show GP. she was like all right i'll apply um and so she applied for nasa and out of like two thousand applicants she was one of 15 people accepted cool so she became a space doctor nice so she got to head up into space uh where she participated in a couple of research projects mainly looking at bone cell growth in space that so makes, she was that makes sense. the gp but also the researcher um looking at bones motion sickness um how your body basically changes in space cool uh and oh the other thing is she was like a professional dancer as well because like of overachiever. Course, yeah because <laughs> she's a brilliant awesome amazing person um and there's this beautiful moment in in one of the once again just go on youtube and look her up because she's still giving interviews and things nice um beautiful moment where she's talking about the the first time the first thing she saw out of the window of the space shuttle was Chicago. Like they were flying <sighs> over the States and she looked down at Chicago and like her 10 year old self who was just like, yeah, of course I'll be up there one day was suddenly validated by like looking down on Chicago being just like, hello. High five to inner child. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so she retired from NASA and went on to become a professor at several different universities. Um, yep. Dartmouth, um, somewhere else fancy yeah. and she also started a foundation called the earth the earth we share cool uh which is an international science camp for 12 to 16 year olds oh, um where you get to go to this science camp and you actually try and solve global problems wow so i wish they, i was 12 to 16 yeah i know how good would it be um and so her sort of mission now is to get people from minorities in represented in science because obviously seeing some representation was the key for her to then go and end up in space like her childhood dream yeah um she also has nine honorary doctorates (laughs) (laughs) she's she's, like catching them in a big net she's 
a doctor of letters, a doctor of science, doctor of humanities, another doctor of science, another doctor of science, two doctors of engineering, doctor of humanities, and then another doctor of engineering. <laughs> Plus the fact that she was a GP yeah. beforehand. She's an actual, she's a doctor doctor. A doctor doctor. Well, she's like nine, ten doctors. Oh, um, so, yeah, she is one of my favourite scientists. Yeah. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX where we're talking about just some awesome women in science. Uh, We're going to go to a track. This is The Mother We Share by Churches. That was The Mother We Share by Churches. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX with me, Eleanor, and my companion in science, Mitchell. Hello! Uh, We are countering alternative facts by bringing you Nothing but the truth about some awesome women scientists yeah. uh, who influenced their field, achieved amazing things, went to space, uh, mapped the oceans, yep. um, made my PhD a whole lot easier by pioneering crystallography. Cool. Um, and I think it's Mitchell's turn it's for my another. Next turn. So the thing that this lady did is wrote a book that I really like. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a good starting point. Well, I've got another, yeah, another another modern scientist who is a woman of color. Yeah, pretty cool. Her name is Anusuya Chinsami Turan. Mm-hmm. She's from South Africa. Excellent. Yeah, um, and she's a paleontologist because, of course, I'm talking about paleontologists. That's that's your go-to topic. Yeah, the the way that I found out about this about Anusuya is because I have a book that she wrote. Yeah, what's what's the book? Uh, it's called The Forerunners of Mammals. Mm. Uh, it's about. Uh, it is about. Well, the forerunners, the forerunners of, mammals. of mammals. I mean, it's a good title. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a very, very good title. So there's this whole group of animals that I really like called therapsids and synapsids, mm-hmm. which are what mammals evolved from. Basically, we are members of that group as well as mammals. And so, my favorite time period mm. is the Permian period. Okay. So you've got the age of the dinosaurs. Yes. Which is the Triassic, the Jurassic, and the Cretaceous. Mm-hmm. The Permian is is the Permian period is the one before. The Triassic. Right. Yeah. And no dinosaurs yet. You've got heaps of these synapsids and therapsids, though. So the one that everybody's... The, the, one, the one that everybody's most familiar with is Dimetrodon, mm-hmm. which is like the sail-backed oh, okay. thing. Yeah, I can picture that. You see it in all the pictures, like, labelled as a dinosaur in the cartoons and on the back of cereal boxes or whatever, even though it's not actually a dinosaur. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and... Yeah, she wrote a book on that that I really like. Awesome. And it taught me a lot about bones. Okay. And their structure mm. and what they're made of. Awesome. Um, because Anasuya is basically a the, the world expert on the microstructure of bones. Cool. I'm, I'm from extinct animals and, and, yeah, like what you can learn from animals and their life histories and their growth rates and their climates and their diets and all this other crazy stuff from the microstructure of bones. And even, I guess, given that often all you have to go off when you're looking at old animals... Is bones. Is bones. It's, that's... A, it's a pretty big... It's there's a lot of secrets wrapped up in the microstructure of bones. Yeah, that's really cool. Like if there was a movie where the world was going to end and you needed to like gather together all the experts in the stuff, mm. Anasuya would be one of the people that you would get if it involved like uh, Pacific Rim. They needed to study the 
structure of the bones from the thing. From, you haven't seen Pacific Rim? No. You know that there's giant monsters in it, though, Yeah, I know. Right? It's yeah. on my list. Yeah. Like, they've... I hadn't seen Jumanji until last weekend. Oh, man. Jumanji's such a good movie. And then we watched Jumanji, and it, it was We watched it was good. Jumanji. Jumanji's a good movie. Um, yeah, she literally wrote the book on the microstructure of dinosaur bones. Um, she's currently the head of the Department of Biological Sciences in the University of Cape Town. Awesome. She's a pretty cool lady. She's 53 at the moment. Mm-hmm. She's won a ton of awards as well. Yeah. Um, she won the South African Woman of the Year Award in 2005. Awesome. Uh, and the National Research Foundation of South Africa awarded her its President's Award in 1995 and the Transformation Award in 2012. Also in 2013, she won the World Academy of Science uh, Sub-Saharan Prize for the Public Understanding and Popularization of Science. That's um, such an important um, role to be in. It's pretty cool. She wrote a popular book on African dinosaurs. Yeah. Because Africa has some really, really cool dinosaurs. It's, it's interesting you say that because like, I, I only know that Australia had dinosaurs because you tell me so. That's it. Um, and then when I imagine dinosaurs, like I do just sort of imagine all, America. All the North American ones. Yeah. It's... T-Rex and Triceratops, Brachiosaurus, Apatosaurus, Stegosaurus, so Allosaurus. even, like, there's sort of Western privilege in dinosaurs. That's it, because historically, for the longest time, paleontology's been done by old, rich, white dudes. Yeah. And North America and Europe has the most old, rich, white dudes. Yeah. And between North America and Europe, North America has better dinosaurs. South Africa has lots of really, really cool fossils from the Permian and the Triassic. Mm. And there's lots of really th- interesting things to be learned about uh, the evolution of mammals Yeah, uh, from that area. Work that Anasuya has done. Like in, in this book, there's a whole thing about, there's a whole chapter in the back about how our ancestors evolved a high metabolism, warm bloodedness. Mm. Like one of the things that allows mammals to be just about everywhere and do just about anything is the fact that we're warm-blooded well there you yeah. go that's awesome yeah and it's good that you talk about evolution because yeah. i'm going to send out my final favorite woman scientist oh cool uh so my final scientist is francis arnold cool. who uh pioneered directed evolution nice yeah what's that you know how stuff evolves, right? Yep. Um, antibiotic resistance is becoming a problem because you apply selection pressure, in this case, throwing antibiotics at bacteria. Mm-hmm. Any bacteria that have a mutation that allows them to survive... Will make lots of offspring. Exactly. Yeah. And so we're basically uh, creating a breeding ground for all the best bacteria to yep. meet, breed, or replicate um in the case of bacteria, and then pass their genes for success on to the next generation. Yeah. And so the population gets more and more enriched with the genes that say, yeah, penicillin, no big deal. Yep. Um, and it's really scary. It's scary. It's scary when it's out of your control. Yep. Um, but it's also the driving force for all evolution. So the, the warm-bloodedness, mm-hmm. you yep. know, um, creatures that had a more of a tendency to be warm-blooded would have survived better Under certain conditions and passed off their offspring better, yeah. And so directed evolution is a technique in which scientists in a laboratory can impose their own selection pressure on a particular thing. When you're studying like E. coli or fruit flies or whatever. Exactly. So um, the particular technique that she's pioneered um, is 
vastly complicated and involves lots of different components. But the basic concept is that you find a, a protein or an enzyme of interest because DNA makes proteins. Yep. That's the central That's dogma. It- um, I mean, there's lots of stuff about DNA that does other stuff and there's RNA that does stuff and there's mRNA that does stuff. But yep. it, gets, know, it gets very complicated when you look fast. into it. But yeah, DNA makes proteins. Yes. And so if you want a protein to do something special, mm-hmm. so say you want... Uh, an enzyme, which is just a fancy protein, yep. um, to break down a toxin. Yep. What you do is you get that gene, you stick it in E. coli, or you stick it in a system. Um, it starts making the protein, um, and perhaps the protein is uh, not great at breaking down the toxin, but it can do it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? You put some toxin in there. Yeah. All right. Anything that doesn't die, you go, all right, there must be a mutation that is facilitating it breaking down the toxin better. So you analyze what its gene looks like. You do some random, you can do a technique called error-prone PCR, which is basically like replicate this gene, but do it badly. Um, <laughs> and it introduces a lot of um, variation. Cool. And then you make a big library of those and you give them the toxin again. Which ones survive? Which ones die? You take the ones that survive, you do it again, you do it again, you do it again. That's pretty cool. And by the end of it, what you've done is you've selected without any previous knowledge of what the protein looks like or wow. anything like that. You've selected yeah. a, a version of it that does does the job better that's so cool so this technique pioneered by Frances arnold the reason that uh she was in the sort of forefront of my mind when i was, when I was thinking about this mm. is that she just won a massive award last year uh and she is the first woman to ever win it of course uh and this was the millennium prize cool so it's a finnish award uh and it's handed oh, is it, out is it done <laughs> no they stopped giving it out <laughs> you've been listening to fuzzy logic <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so yep. it's it's awarded every two years. It's only been handed out since 2004, so I guess they have time to catch up on the whole gender parity thing. Okay. Um, and well, I thought it was the Millennium Prize. I was expecting them to only give it out once every thousand years. <laughs> yeah, it's a really big deal. <laughs> that, that would be a big deal. She's the first woman and human <laughs> to win it. Um, and so the committee's reasoning for giving her this prize, uh, word for word, is in recognition of her discoveries that launched the field of directed evolution, which mimics natural evolution to create new and better proteins in the laboratory. This technology uses the power of biology and evolution to solve many important problems, often replacing less efficient and sometimes harmful technologies. Thanks to directed evolution, sustainable development and clean technology become available in many areas of industry that no longer have to rely on non-renewable raw materials. That's pretty fantastic. It's kind of great. Yeah. And if you win the Millennium Prize, you get a million euros. Wow. Yeah. That's Uh, pretty good. So I think her research lab is going to be relatively well funded for a while yeah uh, which is fantastic uh and yeah she's i i can only imagine she'd be in the running for a nobel at some point but you know how nobels work it's like you have to discover something and then then you know 20 years later you get it yeah well like they just said that she invented a whole new field yeah essentially she's in good stead to get a nobel then yeah yeah gonna go to another song okay uh this is called falling by Haim, and you're listening to fuzzy logic on two double x Never look back and never give up. Never look back and never give up. 
That was Falling by Haim. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. It's your science on a Sunday. My name is Eleanor and I'm joined in the studio by Mitchell. Hello, this is Mitchell. And we are talking about our favourite scientists today, specifically our favourite women scientists because they don't get as much airtime as their male counterparts. Uh, so we are giving them that airtime today in, yep. in support of the women's marches that are happening. Quite a stellar list so far. We've yep. had Dorothy Hodgkins. Yep. We've had Marie Tharp. Marie Tharp. We've had... May Jemison. May Jemison. Anasura Chinsumi Chiran. Uh, Francis Arnold, uh, who pioneered direct evolution. And Mitchell, it's your. My last, my last lady. Your last lady. Is she. Now, have any of yours been Australian? No. This is our first Australian one then. Okay. Dorothy Hill was born in 1907 and died in 1997. Wow. Good um, innings. She was an Australian geologist and paleontologist. She was the first female professor in the, at an Australian university and the first female president of an Australian acad- of the Australian Academy of Science. Wow. Which is pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. And Hill's a pretty good name for a geologist. Yeah, that's not bad, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's pretty good. That's um, great. Yeah. Uh, she grew up in Australia and she was really into sport. Okay. Which well, is excellent. There you go. She, and she like she but she went over to England mm-hmm. to study yeah. and got all of her I don't know if she got a doctorate then or later on, or I can't remember. Mm. I read all of this today. Mm. I'm not going to lie, but she, a lot of the a lot of the research work that she did was on corals, okay, and fossil corals, fossil corals, fossil corals. Okay. Um. So this this entire group of extinct corals called rugos corals. They're really cool. And uh, Dorothy basically wrote the book on rugos corals, as far as I can understand, or at least at the very least Australian ones. Yeah, publishing several important papers systematizing the terminology to describe rugos corals and describing their structure and morphology. When Hill returned to Australia from England, she took on the huge task of dating limestone coral faunas of Australia and using them to outline wide-ranging stratigraphy and producing papers on the coral faunas on all of the states except South Australia. What's stratigraphy? Uh, stratigraphy is, you know how sedimentary rocks are in layers? Yep. And layers stack on top of each other? Yes. St- stratigraphy is the graph is the graphing out of those layers. Okay. So figuring out, hang on, which layers are above which other ones? Sure. Where do these fit in sequence? Okay. Um, how do these, how do they date relatively to one another and all that kind of stuff? Awesome. So yeah, these, these corals over here are from the Carboniferous, these corals over there are from the Devonian, those ones over there are from the Cretaceous and etc. 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 Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is pretty cool. Um, her work on corals became the worldwide standard. Wow. For work on corals. That's amazing. Yeah, she was really good at corals. Oh, Queenslander. Yeah, Queenslander. Nice um, from 19... and of, Yeah, the other cool thing that she did um, from 1946 to 1955, she served as the secretary of the Great Barrier Reef Committee, and she was instrumental in getting the facilities of the Heron Island Research Station constructed. Awesome. The Heron Island Research Station is still used today for studying, studying the Great Barrier Reef. It's one of the, like, when you go on a field trip to go learn at, about marine biology and studying the Great Barrier Reef, mm. the, Heron Island, the Heron Island Research Station is, is the that... first place you go. Okay. It's really cool. And I guess they've got their work cut out for them. Yeah, they really do. Um, over her, the course of her career, she published over 100 research publications in Australian <laughs> and international journals and books. Uh, in 1978, she completed the comprehensive bibliography and index of Australian Paleozoic corals. She made contributions to Australian earth sciences and was a pivotal role in opening a whole new world in education for women. I guess the fact that she was the first female professor yeah. at any Australian university, yeah. was she based up at... UQ or in Queensland? Yeah, no, she University of Queensland. Yeah. Awesome. 
Yeah, Malcolm Thomas, whoever he is, um, <laughs> in his history of the University of Queensland, described Hill as the most outstanding graduate in the first 75 years of the university. Wow. Uh, That's she a has, pretty good claim. She has a stone grotesque carved in her likeness what? on the Great Court, Great Court at the University of Queensland. Um, there is also a bust of Hill at the Brisbane Girls Grammar School where she went to school. Nice. In 1997, the University of Queensland Physical Sciences Sciences and Engineering Library was named after Dorothy Hill. Well, yeah, clearly she, did, she was she super did, like, influential. She did. She did a huge amount of stuff. She's she has a, she has an award named after her. <laughs> she's a cool lady yeah she she yeah like the best coral lady she's the ultimate best coral lady. ultimate coral lady ultimate queenslander geologist paleontologist she's really cool that's yeah. awesome dorothy hill dorothy hill yeah adding to our list of favorite scientists for favorite. this episode yep of fuzzy logic if you want to find out more about female scientists and especially geologists and paleontologists, there's a great website called Trowel Blazers. Like trowel like as in tool. the tool that you dig with in the garden and stuff. T-R-O-W-L. E-L. 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 We've <laughs> I mean, just got heaps of information about more cool lady scientists. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed some of the stories about uh, some very influential scientists uh, that we have been very privileged to either read their books or work on projects that have stemmed from stuff that they've invented or pioneered. Or, or just think that they're really cool. Or just think that they're awesome. How they go to space. Go they, to space. They look at coral. They do all the corals. Every single coral except for South, South Australia. Yeah, South Australian coral can whatever. stick it. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be back next Sunday for more science here on Fuzzy Logic. Thanks for joining us. And until then, have a safe week and mm. make sure that you fact check everything you read. Yeah. No alternatives. No alternatives. Yeah. That was Falling by Haim, and you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. My name's Eleanor. I'm in the studio with Mitchell. Hi. And we are playing, I guess, Top Trumps with... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we said his name. Oh, we said we weren't going to say his name. You said his name. <laughs>